Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the latest hopeful news coming out of Ukraine, whether we should be worried about the next recession, and what we can learn from the world's most famous investors during these volatile times. With Miles Sherry, investment consultant, Mike Haslam, investment funds director, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Hello, and welcome to this week's Word on the Street. Just a heads up, if you are listening to this on Friday, the 1st of April, do have your wits about you because it's good old April Fool's Day. But no fooling around here because there's plenty, as ever really, to mull over. We saw some tentative signs of positive news coming out of Ukraine, fingers crossed there, mixed in with the soothsayer community, getting pretty excited actually about the US yield curve briefly inverting. We're also lucky to have Mike Haslam back to understand what the world's most famous investors are up to amidst this pretty turbulent period. And also what lessons we can learn from them and the managers we entrust some of our clients and customers money to. So, Will, let's start with you. Those seemingly positive developments, hopefully, around the peace talks led to some pretty dramatic moves in truth, didn't they, across the likes of commodities, bonds and stocks. But on the flip side, the yield curve inverting tends to be one of the more reliable statistical signs, in fairness, that a less positive period of economic activity lies ahead dare i even say the r word recession so let's uh let's start there for those newer to investing or perhaps just a bit less familiar what exactly is the yield curve and i guess why does it matter if it inverts because in many ways it's another example right of this industry being pretty guilty of jargon i guess we're basically just looking at the implied cost of borrowing here aren't we two right miles we do get really into these ones and we exchange these words that don't even really mean much to us in the end in the end do they but thank you for the warning on on april fools i'm always a victim there look like you say i don't want to get too wonky on this because you know believe me like i said like you said it's possible to go deep deep financial markets bore here However, you know, very quickly and necessarily oversimplified, like you said, the inverted yield curve is when short term government borrowing costs go over those uh, those longer term borrowing costs, generally two years versus 10 years. But people also look at the three month versus 10 year as well. Um, this, like you say, has been a fairly reliable auger of economic doom in the post-war period in the US uh, with a few important caveats. And obviously, where the US goes, we all tend to uh, or most of us tend to follow in terms of economies. There is some intuition here, if you think about it, as the downward sloping path of expected borrowing costs going into the future can imply that current borrowing costs have become too restrictive and monetary policy will need to be loosened, therefore a recession. Again, I'm cutting a few corners here. Uh, Like I say, that explanation ignores many complexities, especially all of the kind of unobservable nuggets of extra compensation that you tend to find hidden within the government borrowing costs on top of uh, that average expected interest rate. But we haven't got all day and I've written about it actually on LinkedIn if you want to know more. So do please, you know, just have a look at the, the slightly wonkier article. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, well worth a read. But I guess just as a very quick follow on from that, the natural question, of course, on our listeners' minds will be what if, if anything, are you and the team doing in response? 
Yeah, no, I mean, not doing anything. Uh, three reasons, really. The first, the intuition in, intuition point is important, I think, here. It's very hard to argue at the moment that US monetary policy, or indeed monetary policy around much of the developed world, is close to restrictive territory right now. It may start to get there in a year or so's time if the Federal Reserve and others you know, go as planned, uh, but much can happen between now and then. Many investors actually seem to be anchoring to the experience of the last economic cycle when they... Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve managed to get to 2.5% in base rates before they started cutting, suggesting that, you know, the, the choke point was around that point. But remember, you know, this was when the trade war was creating an awful lot of economic noise. And uh, yeah, um, it was hitting sort of business confidence and trade volumes. So I'm not sure that's the best yardstick uh, for this cycle. Maybe, maybe not. The second point, remember that like all the best kind of fairground soothsayers, the yield curve likes to keep its predictions pretty vague. So US recessions have followed yield curve inversion with a range of nine to 34 months uh, since 1965. And there's no relationship between the size of the inversion uh, and the recession uh, that follows. So unfortunately, you know, recessions are as much a part of economic life as rain is to the English summer. And in that context, none of you are going to gasp if I, uh, eyes closed in solemn concentration, predicted that there would be several weeks of this summer uh, blighted by dismal weather. And finally, I think, you know, that the lesson from history on the yield curve as a signal is really about that surrounding context. Like I say, it's a summary statistic that's a useful prompt to recalibrate uh, or recheck all of your assumptions and expectations, not an automatic trading signal or a causal force. So our in-house recession indicator uh, that takes in a broader range of inputs uh, remains pretty sanguine uh, on the risks for now. There's always a risk for recession, remember, but it's just about not letting that dictate your investment rhythms because for long-term investors, what happens in the short term is pretty irrelevant as we know well. Yeah. Sorry, long answer. It's not an easy one to answer, but hopefully that gives you all the information you need. Yeah, no, no, I've got it. It's uh, crystal clear. So look, that's the that's the bigger picture covered off. So let's get a little bit more granular and just go under the bonnet, if you like, and look at what some of the world's best known or so-called superstar investors are doing, and also some of our fund managers too, because I always love hearing what they're up to. Now, Will, don't take it personally. I'm not saying you and the whole investment team from the wider CIO office to manager selection and, and all through that aren't great. Far from it, actually. You make my job very easy, but it is good from time to time just to get a bit of a different perspective and hear what others are up to as well. Yeah, I totally. I mean, I totally agree, Miles. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, on our you know internal superstars, but also, you know, in the allure of the big name, the person who seems to have all the answers. You know, maybe that helps explain the unbelievably durable obsession with obsession with superhero movies. Mm. But I guess as CIO, the bit that I'm sort of most interested in when I think about this kind of this story about what the superstars are doing, and always, you know, I always in awe of our manager selection team for their ability here is how to separate the wheat from the chaff, the genuine superstars of tomorrow from the false profits burnished by lucky circumstance. And, and the problem here, I think, is several fold. You know, one, we know that shorter term market moves in shorter term here can stretch to many years, as you know, good, you know, can, can contain an awful lot of luck, good or bad. And genuine skill can sometimes take several years to show. The other point here is that there are examples of, you know, investment deity who start to believe their own press and will start to you know, suffer a fall from grace subsequently. How do you discern that point? Uh, and fascinatingly, 
We've talked about this before you and I, even some of the sort of accepted long-term investment deity, the likes of Warren Buffett, uh, can have their amazing performance over many years explained by passive exposure to a slice of the market combined with the benefit of leverage available from the structure of Berkshire Hathaway. Not to take anything away from the great man, obviously, but just to highlight, this is a very complicated and challenging topic and one that I'm looking forward to you and Mike hearing, hearing you guys unpack and explain to me. Yeah, look, you're exactly right. So look, let's bring Mike into this because after all, it's where you spend your time. It's your, your bread and butter, if you like. So so what do you do you think actually makes a good investor? Because if you think about it, there are thousands of funds out there. So what are the traits that Ian Elwood's manager selection team look for to actually incorporate, say, one fund or another into our overall investment proposition? Thanks, Miles. And um, um, hi, Will. Yeah, interesting. Skill or luck. And I've just heard Will and say the word superstars four times there. So uh, what is it that makes a superstar fund manager? Well, actually, what is what is it that makes a good fund manager? And to us, it's actually pretty simple. What we're looking for in a fund manager is somebody that has a process. So this is a process by which the fund manager and his or her team look at and analyze every single company they invest in, a process covering everything from cash flows, revenues, margins, to how much debt the companies have, whether they can pay their dividend, um, a process to look at the company's market share, look at their competitors, look at the market they are they were, um, playing in, uh, a process to analyze the management that's actually running the company, and so on and so on. Now, it sounds quite boring, but that's what we like, okay? Nobody's got a crystal ball. Nobody can know what companies will be doing in five, 10, or 25 years' time. So what we're looking for are fund managers who have a process, a process which they have been using for many years, and the result of sticking to that process has delivered returns to investors. And for those funds that we invest in, we make sure that that process does not change. So that's it, is it? There's, there's nothing more to it. <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah, honestly, yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's incredible just, just to understand how important a process is. So think about baking a cake, for example, okay? So if you stick to the recipe, if you add the exact same ingredients, the exact same measurements, every time you bake that cake, it should turn out exactly the same every single time. But if you start going off piece, you, you know, you add ingredients or leave ingredients out or swap ingredients, then the outcome will be very different. So, uh, you know, if you substitute, for example, salt for sugar, because they look a little bit similar, and I can assure you that that's not going to be a Dundee cake you pull out of the oven in one hour's time. I can testify to that, can I just say? I mean, it's a reminder of when uh, my wife was in bed with COVID very early on in the crisis, and I decided to have a go at freestyling a chocolate cake for my daughter's birthday. The result, I can guarantee you, was a lot of broken kitchenware, an inedible cake in the shape of a number 10 for her ninth birthday, and it all went down a little bit like my cake. So take Mike's advice on investing. I can well testify to the food analogy. Right. So that's really the main takeaway today. Don't let Will Hobbs near your kitchen. Yeah. Anyway, look. <laughs> so basically, Mike, it's all about the process or really, I guess, actually just not changing the process and sticking to the long term plan. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll mention Warren Buffett earlier. If you ask anybody to name a successful investor, they probably think Warren Buffett. He has a process. Every single company he's invested in over the last 70 odd years have certain attributes, certain qualities that they all have in common. That's his process. He's not changed that for over 70 years. Got it. And what about some of the, the f- other fund managers that we use for our own investment portfolios and funds? Are they, are they doing a similar thing? Yeah, absolutely. Every single one of them. So 
Let's pick a well-known fund manager in the UK. Let's go with Nick Train. So Nick Train and his team at Linsell Train. The way that they invest in companies is very simple. They look for companies with strong brands. They look for companies that are growing. They look for companies that have a certain level of durability. So that means that these companies, the ones they look at, can continue to grow during good times and bad times. So this includes companies such as Unilever, Heineken, Diageo, Burberry, etc. And Nick Train believes that there just aren't that many companies out there like this. As you know, he has quite a concentrated portfolio, not many companies. But it's these companies that have the durability to continue in business for 20, 30, 40 odd years. That's his process. And Nick and his team have stuck to that process for over 15 years. And we fully expect him to stick to this process today and in the future. But what it does mean then, like Warren Buffett, like every other fund manager investor out there, is that, that you will end up with a particular style. So Nick and his team have this particular style to investing, which we must be aware of. Yeah, just before we come on to that in a bit more detail, that's, of course, just one example of, of one fund. It shouldn't be taken as investment advice to, to buy or sell that particular fund. But that style you've just described to us, so some funds being in fashion, if you like, others being out of fashion, how do we manage that? Because the question, I guess, on people's minds will be, what if we're basically in the wrong fund at, at the wrong time? The wrong fund at the wrong time. Sounds a bit like market timing to me. <laughs> <laughs> sounds a bit like... Sounds a bit like backing the wrong horse at Doncaster. No, what we are looking for is fund managers like Nick Train and the team who are investing for the long term. Now, he fully expects the companies that his team invest in to deliver performance over the long term, five years, 10 years plus. But there will be periods of time when that style to investing will be out of favour. Uh, so you look at the market over the last few months, everybody's, you know, investors have been clambering over companies in the commodities sector, you know, mining companies, energy companies, fine, but it still doesn't affect the long-term demand for those sort of companies that Nick Train invested. There will be periods of time when every style to investing will be in favour and periods of time when, when that style will be simply out of favour. So what we do when we invest is we don't go all in on one fund. We don't go all in just with one fund manager and, that, and, and take a bet on that one fund manager style. We like to invest across a few funds. So a few funds which each have a very different approach to how they invest. So that when one fund underperforms, there's the potential for other funds to outperform. But over the long term, we fully expect all the funds we invest in you know, to deliver performance. But this blending of funds gives us hopefully some kind of smoother sort of journey on the way during those shorter term periods. Yeah, it's worth also, I suppose, covering off how we judge these fund managers, both initially, but also on an ongoing basis. Because once we choose to invest with a manager, the team monitor them very closely, don't they? So so what do we measure them against? And I know it's not completely specified, but what sort of timeframes are considered for that measurement, at least broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is going to be one that is better. We've got Ian and the gang coming on shortly, I think, to talk about exactly this, because I think they're going to do the best justice. But And they've spoken about it on the podcast before, like I say. But I think constant reevaluation against a consistent framework. You get back to sort of Mike's point, really, which is about, you know, and, and, and Ian always talks about his five Ps that, and you know, performance is part of that, but also, and I noticed actually a lot of people are, in the industry are starting to copy that framework. But anyway, performance is part of it, but 
Also, it's about having the right people slotting into the process, the philosophy, the role of the parent company. Um, but, it, but it's more than that even. You know, we assess everything operational too, from operational infrastructure to how they're audited. It, it is necessarily forensic, precisely because recent past performance contains such a limited and often warped message. Uh, and it's it, in many ways, I would see it about it, it, it's about resistance to the fallibility of the individual. That's certainly how I frame it anyway. Like TAA, you know, so in that situation, you know, tactical asset allocation, the short term tilts we make to the portfolio to try and add a little, you know, performance cherries here and there across the years. I'm ultimately on the hook for the decision makers for these short term moves, for the, for the decisions, that, uh, you know, that, that are implemented in portfolios. However, we can't have a situation, if you think about it, from a client service perspective, where if I turn up in a different mood and make a different decision based on the same information, or if I ate a bit of my cake, for instance, and made a different decision, you need consistency. And therefore, what you, you know, the, the way that we do it with TAA is you build a research process buttressed by strong decision support tools, which have been back tested, populated by high quality people. And that feeds inexorably up to a relatively predictive decision. So you've got your process uh, and that is what defines the outcome, not necessarily the single person, uh, superstar or not, who sits on the top um, on the top of that process. So I, I think it's really that very broad forensic research that the uh, you know, the operational investment due diligence teams do, do do into these funds that is really about, you know, that that's what really delivers the value rather than turning around and saying a certain person's name is in the newspaper more than other people in the fund management industry. Yeah, it all sounds very reassuring uh, in, in that respect. But Mike, just a final question from me, if I may, probably one for you. It's been a bit of an odd period, really, in many ways, because we've had a period when some of the least fashionable parts of the stock market have really soared to the top of the so-called leaderboard after a very long period actually on the sidelines. You'll often hear this referred to as so-called value investing. And that seems to be back in fashion whilst growth investing is suddenly a little bit wobblier in truth. So what can you tell us about some of the activity you're hearing about in some of our funds there? Any major changes to talk about? And what are investors doing to help them stick to the processes that, that we've just talked about just now? Sure. Now, it's been a really interesting time, actually, but it's quite different today um, to how it was two years ago. So if we go back to March 2020, go back two years, global lockdown. So at that point, the world suddenly started to look very different. We were about to start working very differently. We were schooling our children very differently, shopping differently, holidaying very differently, if at all. Nobody was flying anymore. And at that point, we started to witness some quite significant changes across our funds. You didn't want to be investing in you know, areas such as pubs and restaurants. You wanted to be owning the likes of Zoom and Peloton. And back then, we witnessed a lot of activity within our funds. Now, come back to today, it's just not like that. Yes, we've got inflation. Yes, we've got central banks starting to hike rates. But where to invest has not changed. It's just such a different situation to where we were two years ago. Yes, the fund managers are making sure that you know, all the companies that they hold still represent attractive investment opportunity today in the same way as they did six months ago, a year ago, two ago. They do that all the time. But what's interesting today is that the fundamentals for those companies have not changed. What you have seen, however, is that some styles of funds are more in favour today than they were last year. Some are more out of favour than they were six months ago. But that doesn't affect our long-term view on these funds. There will always be time when you know some funds do better than others uh, because of their style. The important thing here is that process. It all comes back to the process, Miles. There's no such thing as a superstar fund manager. 
just a superstar process. Yeah, I love that point, Mike. That is just, that's exactly the kind of the most important message I think to get across. And actually, if I can sort of broaden this out a little bit to some of the things that are going on in the world at the moment, you know, remember, this is what liberal democracy is supposed to be about. You know, in a sense, you design a system where not only you get the ability to kick someone out, hopefully before generally he uh, gets too big for his boots, but also you augment that with decision-making infrastructure, kind of restraints, checks on executive power. Uh, And the point is, as a collective, we, the knowledge we have, uh, you know, managed to accumulate are capable of almost infinite reach. However, as individuals, we are ultimately, inevitably fallible. Of course we are. Uh, And you need protection from that. Now, as we know, it's not perfect. We collectively, uh, we can pick bad leaders uh, for a time, but that's true also in investing is that, you know, you need those restraints uh, on the individual and that we're much more powerful as a collective rather than as a sort of, you know, enthralled to an individual who is always inevitably fallible. Sorry for the weird philosophical point to end it with, but I thought it was important. Yeah, no, very well said both indeed. Look, my takeaway as evidenced by, to be frank, Will, your rubbish baking example, follow a process <laughs> and stick to it. That applies to our investment processes, of course, here at Barclays. But listeners should also consider that in terms of forming a plan to try and meet their long-term goals. Look, we've hit time. We'll leave it there. So with that, have a great weekend. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.